We continue our study of the Gospel of John. We're joining him in the upper room now in John chapter 14. Uh, we're barely halfway through the book. John has slowed down and is considering with us at um, great uh, length and detail these last words of our Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed, on the night before he was crucified. He has many important precious things, and how blessed we are that the Holy Spirit has seen fit to record them for us. We are going to slow down as well. We're only going to read together the first uh, six verses, and I won't even get to preach on verse six. I'll have to save that for next week. I'm going to be more, uh, doing more of an introduction sermon today, and so John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we'll take up verse 6 next time, but let us pause and pray together. Our Father in heaven, our hearts likewise are troubled. The Lord is so often far from us, and the troubles are near at hand. We pray that these same words of wisdom, of comfort, and of challenge may so instruct our hearts that we might live for Christ in the evil day, that even as he has sent us into the world, so that we might live in Christ. For truly, to live is Christ, and to die is gain for your children. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what do we do when our world falls apart? In general, this life of ours is marked by many troubles, disappointments, and sorrows. This age of ours, in particular, has various discouragements and frustrations. Morally and spiritually, we fear that our best days in the country are behind us, and we fear for the future. Our hearts are troubled. These disciples, for their part, were troubled as well. Jesus was leaving them. He's just told them that he is going away, and where he goes, they cannot now follow. What would it mean for them to have to go on without Jesus? Their master had so bravely led them and encouraged them day after day, telling them, be of good cheer. He had calmed the winds and the waves with his word. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus had been their rock and their refuge throughout every storm. What could possibly calm and trouble, calm their troubled hearts now that Jesus was leaving? You know, you don't need to say, let not your heart be troubled when there's no trouble in sight. Maybe if you're in good circumstances, there's another way to make an appropriate warning. You know, if riches increase, don't set your heart on them. But this command, don't let your heart be troubled, it's very timely 
at a time of anxiety, of trouble, a time of trouble that both these disciples faced and that we face in so many ways. But what we want to know is, how can we possibly obey such a command? Didn't they have good reason to be troubled with Jesus going away? I mean, don't we have good reason to be troubled? Yes, indeed. We would like to be free from troubled hearts, if possible, of course. We don't want to be burdened and anxious. We recognize how it sours our whole life, especially our spiritual life. But how can we have untroubled hearts when there is so much weighing them down? That's the question for today. What is your answer to that question? I'd like to begin by giving you an illustration from Sinclair Ferguson. You go to get on a plane. You check in your bag, just shy of the 40-pound limit. They put it on the belt along with hundreds of other customers' bags. The handlers take all these heavy bags and load them into the plane to the tune of thousands of pounds in the cargo hold. And then it's time for all those passengers to get in, that great lobby of people, more than we have here, all piling into the plane. And there it sits, the fully loaded plane, ready for takeoff on the runway. And you look at the size of the plane and all that it carries, and you think, how does a massive machine like this ever get off the ground? Of course, it only works because the lift and thrust are greater than the weight and drag. And that, brothers and sisters, is what the upper room is all about. Jesus has waited to give one of his choicest speeches until the evening before he is to be crucified. He's going away, and their darkest days are, in fact, ahead. But the powerful lift and thrust he he supplies here are more than able to overcome all the weight and drag that they are about to experience. It certainly will not quench every fear, just as people today are afraid to fly. But that doesn't change the fact that victory is ours in Jesus. And the Lord Jesus would have you joyful on your journey. And so we begin this precious, precious discourse. We are weighed down with great burdens, with many difficulties, with many sorrows. Being a Christian absolutely does not deliver us from these things. As a matter of fact, we get an extra share because of persecutions. There is good reason to be troubled, but there are also the greatest reasons not to be. This upper room discourse will lay out those reasons, and I can only open up a few verses as we begin today. As Jesus begins, you notice, with the end in mind, describing our destination first. Now, he'll go on in the words that follow to describe all the encouragements and the gifts and graces that he gives in the meantime, the many precious promises that we will need day by day. But today, he begins with the end, and we will look at just at these first four verses where we will find four great reasons why ultimately we must not let our hearts be troubled, no matter what the days have in this life. He speaks of a trustworthy Savior a heavenly home, an eternity with Christ, and a place for you. This will be our four points, and we begin with the most important point, I judge, a trustworthy Savior. 
a trustworthy Savior. Let not your hearts be troubled, he says. You believe in God? Believe also in me. And I'm sorry if you uh, have a slightly different translation. There's an unresolvable translation difficulty here, just like the word read and read, R-E-A-D. It could be both present tense and past tense, uh, depending on context in English. Well, so in Greek, some of you will have something like, uh, believe in God, believe also in me. Or some of you have what I have, you believe in God, believe also in me. the imperative and the indicative are the same. So I hope that uh, you won't be too put off by that. Um, You believe in God or believe in God, uh, that much is not so clear, but this context seems to require a command. However, we take the first part of the sentence, it seems almost certain that the last part is a command to trust in Christ. Believe also in me. You have troubled hearts. The first and most important reason not to have troubled hearts is in spite of all the discouragements which are ahead. You have a trustworthy Savior, do you not? They knew their Lord. They had been through the storms and they knew that they had every reason to trust him for the future. And so do we. Now, as a matter of fact, we have far more reason than those disciples because, you see, at that moment, they were still, as we will read, very confused about the future. They, they heard about the cross. They couldn't see beyond the cross to the resurrection and what was coming. But we can see it all clearly looking back. We understand that this cross that they were so fearful about was our salvation and the resurrection was the Lord's victory over death. And we knew we knew that everything we know that everything was going to turn out fine for them they didn't know in so many ways they had to trust to trust but didn't jesus know what he was doing all along of course he did and he still does can jesus still be trusted of course he can well then no matter what let us trust him let us start with him the trustworthy Savior. Whatever our difficulties, whatever our circumstances, let us remember that he will not let us go, that he will fulfill his purposes in our lives, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That is the place where you must start, even if no other explanation is given. Do you not have a trustworthy Savior? He has been revealed to them and to us as no less than God incarnate. Have we not seen that in this book? Sent by the Father into the world specifically to save us from our sins and to deliver us to his heavenly home. He has shown that by coming to him and by trusting in him, by following him and so forth, that we will enjoy him and his salvation forever. And this is what makes trusting in Jesus the ultimate cure and such a revolution in our lives. Why faith so transforms our loves and our hatreds, our attitudes, our deepest convictions, and our whole lives root and branch that we can say, I I don't care what comes ahead in so many reasons. Because we have laid hold on none other 
then God the Son. The promise that he has made us is nothing short of eternal life, his eternal life. The work that he has done for us and in which we will rest our salvation is nothing less than his own death, the death of the Son of God and his resurrection from the dead. In other words, what we are embracing when we lay hold of Jesus is are the most stupendous things in the world, the greatest things that have ever happened, that have ever occupied the mind or stirred the heart of any human being. And so trusting in him amounts to uniting our hearts with his, our lives with his, our purpose with his, our love with his, our hopes and dreams with his. We become, through this trust, his brethren, his servants, his soldiers, his subjects, the children of his Father in heaven. And if you have such trust in Christ, no matter what comes, your entire life has been redefined, redirected, and truly recreated in him. It is, as it were, to be born again. To confess Jesus as the Son of God is to mean that we stand ready to obey him and serve him, no matter what. To confess him as the only Savior must mean that we are ready to forsake all others, including ourselves, to cleave to him, to confess him as the Son of God sent from heaven to take our sins upon himself means that we owe him an incalculable debt of love, which it will be our joy never fully to repay. We must begin with a trustworthy Savior. How much trust do you put in Jesus in a day, I ask you? How present is to your mind in an average day the knowledge of what he has told you? How convinced are you of what he has said? How much weight do you place in his promises? Do you live your life moment by moment conscious, conscious of his presence and of his love? Is there a spring in your step and a thrill in your heart day after day because of the unsearchable riches of Christ freely given to you? How utterly and wonderfully different our lives, our days would be if only we had some more trust in Jesus, that he has every day of our lives in this crazy world well in his hand, that he is accomplishing great things in spite of all the forces of evil arrayed against both him and us. And he's given us every reason and inducement to put our trust in him. Psalm 32, he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Psalm 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. So I don't care if there's the Red Sea in front of you and the, Egypt of our, uh, the army of Egypt closing in behind you. Even if there's no way out, you have, first and foremost, a trustworthy Savior. And if you apply that knowledge to your days, you will let your heart not be troubled. Uh, secondly, he goes on to speak, of course, of a heavenly home, beginning with the end in mind. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Um, the word I have here is mansions, uh, rather quaintly. 
you probably have as rooms or dwelling places if you have a different translation. The meaning of that word has changed considerably just in the last few years since Webster's 1828 dictionary came out. I looked it up in the old Webster's dictionary just to check and mansion is defined as the primarily any place of residence. And I didn't know it used to be a verb until I looked it up in the Webster's and uh, sure enough to mansion means to dwell and to reside in the older English. I mansioned at a little apartment in Gainesville when I studied computers. Okay, obviously it's not what we mean by mansions today. Uh, being the enormous house of a lord or something, right? So, uh, man, and I hope I'm not ruining the songs of your youth too much, right? Singing about mansions of glory. Yeah, some of you were there. Okay, uh, you know, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where you never grow old, and someday yonder I'll never more wander but walk the streets that are paved with gold. Well, mansion is clearly not the right idea in modern English, and I think it was a failure of nerve to change this in the New King James, but the point is, there's a place for you, a home, a home for you, for the disciples in heaven, and though separated for a time, we're going to be home at last with him forever. Many, many rooms indicating there's more than enough room for all the redeemed. There's a hymn by Henry Light that goes this way, "'Tis good that props should from neath us be fled if we drop into arms everlasting instead. My trials may deepen, my comforts may flee. I'm rich amid ruin with heaven and thee. I'm rich amid ruin with heaven and thee. Do you see how this works to lighten your heart? Even in the midst of ruin, Now, the point of this verse, of course, is not that you should be thoughtless about life in this world and look only to the sweet by and by. I mean, the disciples had a job to do, as do we. Just a little bit later, Jesus will pray, "Uh, Father, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world, right? There's work to do. We're not called to escapism. But it tells us, no matter what should come, no matter what ruin is here, it's not our home. This world is not your home, Christian. Your citizenship is in heaven from whence you eagerly await a Savior. Or John says, Beloved, we are children of God, and it's not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So you see, to know your heavenly destiny is a great inducement to peace as well as to godly living in the meantime for what is coming. And I so often put it to you, if Jesus is worth being with forever, is he not worth being with now? If he's worth serving forever, is he not worth serving now? Will you not start today seeing that this is what a lot what lies ahead? Point three, uh, point two, rather, a heavenly home. Don't get too excited. We're only at point two. A heavenly home. Uh, Third, a place for you. I thought of combining it, but Jesus seems to make a point of it, and so I'd like to as well. I go to prepare a place for you. You can think about how Joseph had gone and made ready the land of Goshen for his father and family and sent them carts to come and to join them and 
how, the, how his father could scarcely believe it when he heard that his, his son had become this prime minister in the greatest kingdom of the world and had prepared such a place for him. Thomas Boston writes, uh, Jesus Christ, our best friend, is the Lord of the land to which death carries us. When Joseph sent for his father to come down to him in Egypt, telling him, God has made me Lord over all Egypt, and Jacob saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, and the spirit of Jacob revived. He was ready to have a heart attack when he heard all these things. And then he, he, he saw, it's real, it's real. And so our spirit revives when we say, I have gone to prepare a place for you. Where I am, that you may be there also. He's gone to prepare a place for us. And, and we say, well, <laughs> could you tell us a little more? What does that mean? What does that, what does that, what does that imply? He doesn't say. And, and this is a frustration that we so often find in the Bible where we want to know so much about our eternal dwelling. And usually the Bible, if it gives it to us, it'll give it to us in negative language. It'll say there's no more sin, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more night, no more death. Great. All negatives. You remember Peter's description, a totally negative description, an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away. Now, that doesn't say what it's like. It says what heaven is not like. And that's to be expected, I think, for something that is just transcendently, absolutely wonderful. A man falls in love with a young woman. He comes home and he says to his mom, Mom, I've met the most wonderful girl. She says, well, I'm delighted to hear it, son. What's she like? What does the young man say? Well, she's five foot six, 150 pounds, Caucasian, brown hair, blue eyes, and she has a birthmark on her upper right arm. I don't think so. That would be a very accurate description that a doctor might use. But the man will say, she's wonderful. She's not like anyone I've ever met. You wouldn't believe it. I've never seen anyone like her. She's, she's too wonderful for words. That describes exactly what she's like and how she feels. And if you were a mother, it's just the kind of description you'd expect. Of course, it won't be very helpful if she were to turn up missing one day and you had to go down and speak to the police sergeant and say, my son's fiance is missing. Well, can you give me a description? Um, yes, there's no one like her. Um, she's not like anyone you've ever met. She's wonderful, really indescribable. It's going to be difficult to pick her out of a lineup. The negative language, though, you see, ex expresses wonder, awe, and transcendent amazement, or... More to the point, we're told in 1 Corinthians 2, eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But he adds this, God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. We, we, don't, we don't know the specifics. We don't know. We want to know so much more. Um, you know, the little bit we're told about golden streets and holy saints and being with the Lord, I mean, it's more than enough to assure us that, that it will be the home, the end of our journey, the, the dwelling place of God will not disappoint in any way. Our eternal home awaits. And Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you, brother, for you, sister. He wants you to know on the worst and darkest of days, this world's not your home. He's gone to prepare your place. And fourth and finally, he says that we look forward to an eternity with Christ. 
Verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land, said Rutherford. Well, George Sayre was a student and later a friend of C.S. Lewis and the author of what's regarded as the best biography of Lewis. <laughs> I haven't read it. Um, but uh, he read the Darnia stories to his little daughter. And after he finished the stories, the girl told her father, I don't want to go on living in this world. I want to live in Narnia with Aslan. <laughs> she said, he said, darling, one day you will. One day you will. Out of the mouth of babes. We were made for a deep and unconquerable love. In his presence, Psalm 16, is fullness of joy. At his right hand, pleasures forevermore. We look forward to be everlastingly overwhelmed by his beauty, his majesty, his love, his holiness and power, his love and grace. Our souls will be filled with intense delight and rapture, and we will be transformed by joy. Revelation 5, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And he will delight us for all eternity. And we will study the ways of God and we will see how everything that has happened will be for his glory and the good of his people and how every sparrow that fell to the ground and every hair that fell from my head will somehow be to the praise of his name for all eternity and will be lost in wonder and love. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Jesus has so much more to say in the coming verses about what life will mean in this world and how he will send the Holy Spirit and what the days will be like, that'll wait. He wants to begin with the end in mind. For heaven is no afterthought. Without the entire biblical, without it, the entire biblical system of the meaning of life crumbles. I'm reading to my family, Pilgrim's Progress again now and Imagine Pilgrim's Progress with no celestial city as a destination. It becomes an insipid story of a pointless journey to nowhere. That's what life is like without this destination. You lose the prospect of heaven and the prospect of meaning, and everything else in life goes away too. That's what's happening in the universities. That's what's happening in the world and the culture. The destination is gone. The journey becomes meaningless. And those who wander become lost. 
was Woody Allen who said, the trick, to start, the trick is to start at the ending when you write a play, get a good strong ending, and then work backwards. Well, it's an important point for authors. Without a proper ending to a drama, a story will lose its meaning and significance, and so it is in the drama of your life. There's lots of drama. <laughs> but God had an ending in view. When he made the world, when he made you and me, and that ending he had in view for his people is life forever with him. That is to affect us now in countless ways, as one put it. In our troubles, we are to remember the rest we will soon enter. In our battles, we are to remember the victory soon to be ours. In our struggles, we are to remember the judgment day and the crown that Christ has laid up and holds ready for everyone who fights his battles. In our longings, we are to remember the perfect satisfaction of life that awaits us in heaven. In the darkness of life, we are to hold fast the prospect of opening our eyes on the glory of God. From this future, which God has promised and Christ has guaranteed, we draw our courage and fortitude, our hope, our patience, our moral resolve, and the joy that is our strength. But all of that, of course, is another way of saying that we must live by faith. We must believe what has been revealed to us, and we must put that revelation to work in our wives. Let not your heart be troubled. It's to practically affect us in every area. I quoted from you, 1 John 3, how it affects Christ-likeness. We know that when he is revealed, we'll be like him. We'll see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. Or another example, slaves even are told, what you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ, filling their every miserable day of thankless, hard labor with purpose. For they will be rewarded by Jesus, all out of proportion to what they have done, a heavenly reward that will enrich every day of their labor. Here is the practical power of hope. Sometimes this Christian hope is scorned, you see, as if it's pie in the sky, by and by, as if it actually perhaps interfered with our useful service in this world. People, they say, are too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. As a matter of fact, the proper anticipation of heaven, as Christ has revealed it, utterly transforms every miserable day of human life into a, a far better one. And in these countless areas, you see the practical power of this doctrine of heaven. Whatever you do, slave, you do it heartily as to the Lord and not as to men. You know from your Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. You serve the Lord Christ. What dignity, what nobility, what hope, what power. Don't let your heart be troubled. On the other hand, I warn you, you take this off the table. You set that bad news from Facebook or whatever it is before your little face every day. You set the troubles of this world this close to you and you put Jesus a million miles away and you know what's going to happen. It's going to be mistrust that becomes positively paralyzing. It will trouble your heart. 
Also reading to my family about the conquest of Canaan. You remember what happened to those ten anxious spies, how they returned the first time and they said, there are giants in the land! We were grasshoppers before them. Their fears made them so afraid they couldn't go on one more step. Now you think, well, I mean, can't you remember all the things the Lord had done for your deliverance in the past? All the promises he made for the future. Oh, that one matter was so close before their face, their fears welled up so they couldn't go on a single step. They greatly exaggerated the, the dangers. They were giants. We were grasshoppers. Such hopelessness and mistrust make your troubles gigantic and yourselves utterly self-pitying, quivering blobs. Don't look around. Just look up here. Okay. A troubled heart takes away even the joy you do have. And a troubled heart makes the bad things in life so much worse. A demoralized and frightful soldier is already overcome, and how much more a soldier of Christ. You have a duty to put this off, to put Christ on, and what a joyful duty it is. Charles Spurgeon writes, A troubled heart is most dishonorable to God. It makes the Christian think very harshly of his tender, heavenly friend. It leads him to suspect eternal faithfulness and to doubt unchangeable love. Is this a little thing? It breathes into the Christian a proud, rebellious spirit. He judges his judge and misjudges. He has not learned Job's philosophy. He can't say, shall we receive good from the hand of the Lord and shall we not also receive evil? The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away and blessed be the name of the Lord. Or if that's too high for you, friends, you've got to start living like the country song. You need to start living like you were dying. And setting that dying, as Jesus describes it, before your face. And not only in that song, but in the glorious reality, what freedom and joy comes from embracing these few truths. We're just getting started. Everything joyful comes from embracing these things. So you begin with the end in mind as well. And in conclusion, did you notice, by the way, that just before we started reading, actually twice in the last two chapters, that it said that Jesus was troubled in spirit? Say, wait a minute. He's saying, let not your hearts be troubled. And Jesus was troubled? Oh, yeah. Um, John 13, 21, he was troubled in spirit. John 12, 27, now my soul is troubled. Troubled? Troubled? Wait a minute. He's telling us not to be troubled and he's troubled? The same word? Oh, yes. And this takes us right to the very heart of the matter. The heart of the gospel. Why you don't need to be troubled? Because he was troubled. The dark shadow of the cross had now fallen upon him. He would be forsaken that night and crucified in the next day. He was about to be troubled more than any man was, was troubled ever, bearing the sins of the world. And so you see, in so many ways, this is the whole point. He was troubled that you don't have to be. In every trial, in every sorrow, in every pain, he was troubled so that the great questions of your life 
would all be answered wonderfully, certainly, and delightfully, happy beyond words. Is this your destination? Is this your destination? I tell you the way. Thomas says, hey, uh, Lord, I don't, know, I don't know the way. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. There is where we have to pick up next week. Do you know where you are going? Why not start now? The text tells us not only your destination, but how to get there. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Oh, think, writes the poet, to step on shore and that shore heaven, to take hold of a hand and that God's hand, to breathe a new air and feel its celestial air, to feel invigorated and to know it immortality. Oh, think, to pass from storm and tempest to one unbroken calm, to wake up and find it glory. That is the only hope worth living for. Let us pray. We pray again, O gracious Father, that such promises would thrill and fill our hearts, that you would give us an overflow of joy in yourself, that the Lamb, indeed all the glory of Emmanuel's land, would be all our desire even now, that Christ, who is run away to heaven with our hearts, should be now all in all. Oh, satisfy us. We do not feel this longing joy as we ought to, as we most need to. Our hearts still remain far too troubled. We pray that they might find their rest in Jesus today. I pray for some other restless soul, for one who wanders every day with no hope, for one who just exists soon to die not expecting such hope as this. May the futility of such a life and the hopelessness of such a death and then the judgment to come make such a one flee to joy and find this day through trust in Christ a heavenly and eternal home. Have mercy upon us, sinners all. We pray it for Jesus.